You could say that the film and entertainment industry threads all through the lineage of this very special guest. His uncle was an actor, his stepfather was the son of the second president of the American Society of Cinematographers and actually introduced our guest to the camera department at Columbia Pictures. His older brother is a camera operator, his sister has done various acting work, his son is a camera assistant, his daughter is a singer, songwriter, and actress, and the man himself is a director of photography that orchestrated the shots of such iconic films and television of our time like Cheech and Chong's next movie, Staying Alive, Short Circuit, Spaceballs, Friends, which he received three Emmy nominations for Outstanding Cinematography, and of course, The Goonies. Thank you very much to Nick McLean for taking the time to be with us today. You're welcome. I appreciate uh, doing it for you. Now, Nick, before your career in cinematography kicked off, we read that you attended the University of Southern California, USC for those out west, on a football scholarship and then opened a pool hall and auto shop in California. Now, you were 25 when you got your first job in television operating the clapper for a series called the iron horse can you tell us about that time in your life and what eventually led you to following in your stepfather's fred jackman jr's footsteps choosing a career in cinematography well i actually um wanted to be a professional athlete but i wasn't quite good enough so at usc i took a couple classes in cinema and i was very attracted to it and then actually i never graduated from college but when i got out of college i went to my stepfather who was a cinematographer and I asked him if I could get a couple of days. You had to, in those days, you had to have 30 days in order to get in the union. And I asked him if he, he could help me get a couple of days. And after I had the one full day, I knew that's what I wanted to do for my, the rest of my life. Yeah, it doesn't take much if you've got it in your blood somewhere to, to get the itch that you can't scratch enough. Yeah, I like that. Um, before you took the role of cinematographer and director of photography, you were the camera operator in some pretty significant films, um, such as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Deer Hunter. Could you explain for those who don't know um, the difference between a camera operator and a DP or a cinematographer? And was that the trajectory that you always planned or did you find yourself wanting more responsibility and creative control once you were on set and got that itch? Yeah, well, the difference between a, a deep director of photography and camera operator is the camera operator is the second um, cinematographer, a second DP, and he's the guy that actually looks through the camera, and then you communicate to the director through the cinema or the DP director of photography. So you the the camera operator really has an incredible job on the set, and it's very you know it's very responsible. You know, they as soon as every shot's over, everybody looks at you to say whether it was good or it was bad and mm-hmm. the, the director of photography actually is kind of more uh, responsible for the lighting and communicating with the director etc uh, etc et okay very nice yeah that's that's what i that's what was my interpretation of it too is that the director of photography is in charge of pretty much the overall look making sure that you're right. seeing everything exactly. and seeing everything from the right place i think that's a i think it's a really good lesson for those kids out there who are watching film and say i want to do that but you don't know what you're asking to do you go to school say i want to be a director of photography you're like why aren't they letting me look in the camera i want the no you want to be a camera operator <laughs> the camera <laughs> operator is a great job that's right I, right i could have been a director of or a camera operator for my whole career but luckily i became real good friends with burt reynolds and he decided to move me up to to a director of photography 
and it's unheard of as a camera operator to go to a director of photography in in movies and that was what Bert gave me the opportunity I couldn't pass it up I didn't think I knew enough to do it but I couldn't pass it up so I I did it and it worked that's interesting I'd assume that the natural progression would be like camera operator director of photography but that's not typically the case no it is the case but to get the job from oh, okay. camera operator to, to director of photography is almost impossible. It's just, it's a very, very hard um, step in the business. Wow. So it, it takes somebody with a little bit of clout to pull you from yeah. one side to the other. There you go. It was handed to me and I couldn't pass it up. And so I, my first movie was called Stroke Race, and which was this a race car movie, 90% of it exterior, which is pretty easy for a, a director of photography to pull off. So I did that and it came out real good. And then from there, people saw what I could do and started. I started getting jobs from that. Um, amazing. Now, you say it was handed to you, but earlier you said you weren't good enough to be an athlete. Athlete, I, I, I say no. You were handed the ball and you scored. So tell Bert, Bert knows yeah. best. <laughs> awesome. I, I just like how he says I started getting jobs as if he's talking about like a like like target or oh no he like, started getting he's working with jobs. robert uh, richard donner steven spielberg like hey. that's amazing now, he said he was lucky but he's also talented so you you need both let me ask you this now you, you speak you were speaking about a camera operator nick now you were also the camera operator on exorcist 2 in 1977 now with all the rumors all right. of, about the exorcist production and many involved being so-called curse did that cross your mind at all in deciding whether you or whether or whether not to work in the sequel not really, but we did have to recreate or go back up in the bedroom where she, you know, is possessed. And that was actually pretty scary. And if I remember correctly, Richard Burton was in that scene and he's a very tough guy or was a very tough guy to work with. And when we would pan, pan down the camera to get her get ready to to uh, puke, the camera head would get jammed and, and we couldn't we'd have to do another take. And Burton got real upset with us. So. It was that room with that going on that, you know, was scary enough to begin with the possession um, and Burton. Uh, it was it was a rough it was a rough day or two. Yeah, days. I think whether or not you believe in the supernatural, you can't deny the fact that at the very least, there's something that happens when there's when enough people are under the impression that something could happen that and that uh, that energy has ability to manifest itself in certain ways like you see where towns have, a whole towns have started laughing and hysteric laughter just because it's something it's something that you know is is uh what is it called when um contagious mm -hmm. like, yes. and and yeah and you get an environment like that it's easy for for like a hysteria to, to happen um well, a uh, completely different note from The Exorcist. In 1980, uh, this was your first time being credited as cinematographer, and this was with uh, Cheech and Chong's next movie. Actually, that's the only incorrect part on your book. King Baggett was the director of photography, but um, that's the only thing I saw in your notes that wasn't correct. But I, I've seen it in other bios that I've had also. So... Um, I'll take that up with IMDb when, when we, when we're done. Here. Um, so on Cheech and Chong's next movie, you were, you say you're the camera operator. Yeah, I was the camera operator and it was a great time because we all heard that, you know, Cheech and Chong were big drug addicts and, but they're really kind of health nuts. Actually, they do smoke a little grass 
<laughs> and uh, but they're both health nuts, and we have a big uh, you know uh, margarita party every Friday night. It was really a fun shoot. I'm always interested when they're when the director of a film is also one of the leads in the film. How that translates to the the production, how that's different from like a typical production where the director is just the director and he's always behind the camera. He's watching the he's watching things from the big picture as they're happening. But in most of that, the the director is in front of the camera. So how does that? Yeah, it's pretty. You know especially when video replay came in, which I think we had on Cheech and Chong, after the take, uh, the director could come back, you know, and everybody just stands around while he watches what he did. And that's pretty much how it's, how it, it uh, you get your day's work done is, you know, video replay. I could imagine that adding a lot of time to production, not just watching every take yeah, after. That's for sure. But if you're um, if you're an actor that's never really fully satisfied in your performance and you're looking at that from a director's point of view, like it's what, like this internal battle with yourself. Like, now nah, I know I can do it better. Make yourself do it better. I will run it again by everybody back to one. Yeah. <laughs> how was 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 how was Tommy Chong with that? Was he was he like um, like just whatever, man, like cool about it or was he was or, very cool about it. He was really good. Good guy. Um, you know, we all kind of collaborated on everything. And if he didn't like it and we had had to do it a different way, we just kind of figure it out between all of us. And there, yeah, there was no tough stuff on Cheech and Chong. It was all a big party and it was enjoyable. The whole, the whole shoot. Wow. That's awesome. I'm this, it shows in the movie. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. You graduated to doing impressions. You've not been doing impressions this whole season, and now you're doing Cheech and Chong brought it up. One impression <laughs> that, that anybody can do. <laughs> Oh really? really? Nice. Awesome, man. Awesome. If he runs by, just tell him you know we say hi or anything like that. Uh, hi. <laughs> hi. See what see what we did there. All right. So back going back to Burt knows best. Now Burt Reynolds' filmography seems to intersect with yours frequently. In 1983, the best year ever. You worked on, as you mentioned earlier, Stroker Ace. Then twice again in 1984 with Cannonball Run Two and City Heat, and Stick in, Stick in 1985. And he would also ask you to shoot Evening Shade, a popular sitcom that aired in the early 1990s. Now, let me ask this. There was also Harlan and Marlene, and let's not forget The Man from Left Field and The Maddening shortly after. So needless to say, was there a relationship or bond there beyond the work that resulted in you guys working together so frequently? Actually, he ended up one of my best friends. We, we got together on a lot of collaboration, and we just liked each other. And actually... Bert was an old football player too. So I think a lot of our friendship was through that. And he's just was a real, real generous guy. It'd be hard not to like Bert Reynolds. So he, um, he and I became very, very close friends. That's awesome. Did you know that's why one of the, why it was so easy for him to do the longest yard? Cause he was an athlete, Bert Reynolds. Adam Sandler is in the longest. No, I'm, I'm uh, dude, you I'm, almost made me I'm lose playing, it. Okay. Devil's that. advocate. Is yeah. that what you're doing? He almost made me lose it. All right. You almost yeah. made me sloppy. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he seems like a very, like a, he seemed like a very genuine, uh, gentleman. Yeah, for sure. And that mustache, <laughs> like you can't rock a mustache like that and not be a gentleman's gentleman. Did you puff up your stash for this? Your stash is normally not like oh, that. I've been getting it on point for the finale. <laughs> um, uh, so also in 1983, you shot the classic film Staying Alive when, uh, and I didn't even realize this until I was doing the research on this interview that 
like I think John Travolta staying alive. I never thought Sylvester Stallone staying alive, but he 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 wrote and directed that movie. So- yeah, he did a he did a real he's a real good director. And in Staying Alive, if you ever see it again, I think it's one scene when Travolta is walking in New York towards the camera. Stallone jumps in the the shot and turns around and just looks at the camera for maybe a second or two and keeps walking. But very few people pick that up. I, I remember the, the Italian stallion cameo, but I, <laughs> I never associated it. Never, never associated it with, uh, I did not know he wrote and directed that. And yeah, he's gotta be an amazing writer and filmmaker altogether because I mean, he came out the gates with, uh, Rocky. Right. And I mean, that, that like won so many awards. You know, a great story for you guys about Rocky is Stallone wrote that and brought it to Hollywood and sold it for, I don't know, $200,000 or something like that. And the studio wanted Jimmy Kahn to play Rocky. And, and I know I had a lot of similar friends with Stallone. I know he was broke at the time and he gave the money back and said, I'm not, I'm not going to do this movie or let you have this movie unless I star in it. And they, they said, okay. And that's how he got started, but that's a lot of balls. Yeah. 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 It, it paid off. Yeah. That goodness <laughs> grief. God, I mean, it still, still is paying off to this day. Right. I mean, but he, he, that's not the first time he's still doing that with the expendables. He'll direct. And that's what you guys were talking about before directing and going back after to look at the shots and things of that nature. But yeah, right. but it, I, before I even move on, like you just said, it wasn't even like they were asking anybody to play that part. They said con, they were like, we, we want this con. And he was like, nah, I'll do it. And he wasn't wrong. He, he was not wrong. Oh, yeah. yeah, he wasn't yeah. wrong. He, he was something. Now, now I, will, I do know this. Now, you, if I'm not mistaken, if IMDb hasn't messed us up here. Now, again, you worked with Stallone again in 1986 in one of my favorite films of all time, Cobra. Yeah, I actually, he didn't, he didn't tr- really love the director of photography. And I was mm-hmm. doing something else. And as soon as they got to a point where I could come in and finish it, I came in and finished the film with him. Dang. Okay, yeah, that's... I, I I remember watching a behind the scenes documentary on that where it was just a lot going on in the development of that movie and a lot of push and pull between uh, Stallone and the director. Yeah, George Cos- Cosmatos. In fact, everything that you see that Stallone's in, that there's another director, Stallone really directs him. You know, he just comes out and he looks at the video, he'll case it. We might light a scene and he comes in and looks at the lighting, doesn't like it. And they walk, you know, but he's really, Cosmatos didn't really have much to say. <laughs> that's, that's, wow. a, that was actually, well, we can go ahead and skip my next question. <laughs> yeah. that, that's pretty much, uh, yeah, the uh, Rick, I think it was Rick Waite, the DP, was the one that confirmed that right. in the behind the scenes I saw. Um, yeah, that that's. I mean, hey, when you're Stallone, and it, I mean, it came out good. So right. whatever happened, he's happened. been betting on himself yeah. the whole time. In fact, I just did this tour of Ireland about a year ago. Of of the, for some reason, there's about five or six movies I did that they really love in Ireland. So I did this whole tour uh, of colleges and and um, you know classes over there and they did show cobra and we got a big audience for cobra that's awesome wow now let me ask you this when we move forward a little bit we're still in the 80s again one of the greatest just decades in our time here nick it's 1985 and the goonies never say die you're working with richard donner 
Steven Spielberg, and a cast of many kids that are still doing very well for themselves today. Now, in 2017, The Goonies was entered into the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. How does it feel to have been a part of something that is so ingrained into the fabric of history, adored by fans across multiple generations, and a cult freaking classic? You know, I didn't know until you just said that. What That's pretty amazing. And, and The Goonies, from all of the films that I've done, and I've done some pretty big ones. I've gotten more uh, press out of the Goonies than any of them. It's it's amazing. Everybody loves the Goonies. And when I was in Ireland, they showed it. They had a new 4K print that we showed in um, Galway. And the place was packed. And it's like a, a line around the block. So in Ireland, Goonies is still huge. Wow. Yeah, I actually saw that they that 4K release was in theaters for a week. And it actually outperformed other Current new movies. releases, <laughs> new releases that that had a head start on it in their cinema run. It's just, yeah, because the show, the, true art is true art is true art is truly timeless. Whether it's painting, whether it's film, music, it's, it's art. Goonies never say die. You know it. There um, you go. Was it your was it your previous work with Spielberg on Close Encounters that led to your involvement on that project? Actually, it was, but I worked with Spielberg on his first ever movie, Sugarland Express, when he was like 25 years old. And then he asked us actually to do Jaws, and we didn't want to do that. So on Close Encounters, we went and did that. And then it actually was, he introduced me to Donner. And um, then Donner took over from there. From Mike Riva doing the sets and then and Nick McLean on camera and this wonderful crazy group of kids and Spielberg looking over my shoulder all of the time, which I happen to love because I guess he's the biggest kid of them all and comes up with the best ideas. Spielberg was bugging Donner and I every day when we were up in Astoria about this, that, and the other thing. And Donner says, I, I know how to get, get him out of this deal. When we get back to Hollywood, we'll offer him to do the second unit. And we did, and Steven took over the second unit on another stage and we never heard a complaint again the rest of the movie. Oh, my he God. Did, he did some great stuff on the movie, though. Let me ask you this real quick, because I know this is not in the questions, but I, I, something you said uh, caught my interest here. You said that you weren't interested in doing Jaws. Now, did you not like the script? And let me ask you this. Looking back on it, is this something you wish you would have done or entertained? Yeah, I would have loved to know. But the cinematographer I was working for at that time was uh, Vilma Zygmunt, and he had done Deliverance, which was a water movie. And water movies are really tough. Right. So he said, no, let's go do something else. I forgot what we did. But then when Spielberg came back and, and we got close encounters, um, that's, you know, we, we teamed back up with him. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I, I run a uh, photography business and whenever there's kids involved, there's, I always schedule more time than I normally would because kids are just unpredictable. They're hard to work with. One of the things that impresses me most about the Goonies is the dynamic between this group of kids and how well they are at at doing like they do an adult good job yeah. at acting. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what that was like from your perspective, you know, being on set, getting all these shots, if, if that was if it was more or less challenging for you. Very challenging. And normally what we would do when they mis misbehave, we just yell at them, scream at them, scare them. So they, they would get back to where they belong. And normally I would have two painters on a set, but it, working in those caves, I had two plasterers. 
So I would be hiding lights in the caves and then have to plaster over them. And naturally, as soon as you set a light, the kids would walk, one of them would walk in front of it, and, you know, and there was no light down there. It was, it was really low key. So it was pretty tough down in those tunnels. Uh, yeah, I could imagine. About the kids too, I read that they were all uh, really standoffish toward Richard Donner during like the last week of production, which turned out to be at the instruction of uh, Steven Spielberg, who said that he was going to fly them all out to um, his house or Richard Donner's house in Hawaii, the beach house after rap after production was wrapped. And he, he took it as them like being just cold to him and standoffish. Did, did you witness any of that in the last week of production? Yes, I did. And Dick told me the story of what happened. He got up one morning with a little hangover and went out on his deck and all of a sudden, out of the water comes the Goonies. And he went, oh, no. He went nuts. He couldn't, and yeah, Spielberg, you know, flew them all over and families in his jet and uh, and pulled that off on Dick, which is, I would, I wish I had been there to see it. It would have been great. Amazing. Yeah, that's now, such a great story. Uh, wow. Now, speak, speaking of Spielberg, now, we also read that he directed at least one scene in the film. Do you happen to know, or are you at liberty to say which scene that may have been? Yeah, I can tell you exactly. He was on the next stage from the great big ship that we had. So he had that slide built. Remember when the kids slid, slid down that slide? Mm -hmm. That's all Steven. He had that and he had the wishing well and the waterfall where they came through the waterfall. And oh, when the kids had to take a leak and the, or the kids were kissing or, or something that went in the wrong uh, tunnel or whatever, but he did a lot. And, and everything, of course, Steven does is, as good as we could do so we were glad to have him do it yeah yeah i i heard he was a very hands-on producer to say the least oh 100 percent. and and then like i said he would call us up every night when we were in astoria and have some some thing to say about our work about what we didn't do or this set and it was you know it's just that he was bored so we got or dick gave him that job and we got back and we never heard from him again wow that's, that's so funny so I, I saw also that your brother worked on this film. Can you tell us about what that experience was like working with your brother? Oh, it's great. He's, I could very rarely get him though. He's pretty popular. My son too. My son now has been on Grey's Anatomy for about seven or eight years. And um, they're both top notch what they do in the industry. So it's, if I had my brother, I probably only had him for a week, but I'll, whenever I can get family members, I get them. Nice. Now, you mentioned earlier before about water shoots being difficult. And also you mentioned uh, the lighting in the cave and working with some of the kids was a little bit difficult because it was so dark down there. Let me ask you this. Would, th would you say that was the most uh, challenging part of the production or what would you say that it was? No, I think you're right. That it was the most challenging. I think the most memorable is when we went on the big stage with the big ship. I mean, that was that was there. That was on stage 12 at, at uh, Warner Brothers, which which is the biggest stage, one of the biggest stages in Hollywood. And in fact, where my lights were, my arc lights were, you know, 90 feet high. So it's huge, huge stage. And it was really, and you know, that was all that water. And we did a whole scene in that water with an octopus that never made the movie. So it was, as the kids are crossing to go to the ship, this octopus attacks them. And, and we all had these water wetsuits. And of course, Donner's a big uh, prankster. And he brought some scissors and he would cut holes in your in your um, wetsuits. 
So, <laughs> so the wetsuits were, you know, good for about a day. <laughs> Are you feeling that, man? Yeah, I'm feeling it. Hey, Dick. <laughs> um, no, that that's uh, that that's really interesting. Milkbusters. What was the moment with? Because uh, I, I had read that Josh Brolin, because Richard Donner wanted to take wanted wanted real reactions when the boat was shown for the first time. I brought them all in, not blindfolded, but with the backs of the camera. They all knew what they were going to see, but they had no idea what it was going to look like. And um, I read that Josh Brolin uh, fouled up one of the takes because he saw it and just went, "Holy shit!" And and they're like, oh, "We can't use that." Actually, all the kids they wouldn't let him on the stage before that scene and we waited for that scene for weeks and weeks until it was just right and when they came out of the of the those shoots they the first time they got up and turned around and looked at the ship that was the real reaction donner wanted that reaction and from where they landed in the water to where the ship was just like this I, it was it was a real reaction you could tell that, like when you say we waited weeks for the the right time to shoot that. I think that's that's why a movie like The Goonies and movies from that era, when they come back on a re-release in Ireland, they they outdo movies that are popular that are just now recently released because there's just so much more time and consideration that's that's put into every little detail of these pictures. It really creates like the peak of of movie magic and cinema. I agree. It's, there's something. It's a nostalgia so, to it. It's definitely a nostalgia to it. A, it. Instead of depth. just cranking them out, man, we're only there for two. You know, you, you take your time and do those things. Is there a particular shot or sequence that you're the most proud of when you look back at the Goonies? Let's see. I would say the tunnels, you know, um, the first time they go into the tunnels, I underexposed it. And we had to read first. That was the only scene I ever had to read reshoot in my whole career that was so black donner says i think we should go back and do this again and uh, so down in the tunnels it was such a challenge it was a nightmare to get all that stuff but i would say that was the most challenging and that's the most proud i was of of uh anything in that film yeah i mean for most of the movie taking place underground in low right. lighting yeah. it right. looks magnificent and right. I mean, low lighting's got to be one of the most challenging things to work with. Especially back then. Oh, yeah. I keyed a lot of that stuff at five-foot candles, which is not much light. You know, it's it's almost key at a F2, but um, with real fast film, with 800 ASA film. But another scene is when they got to that, like that Bones piano to get the right key to make the, the thing come down so that they could get into the slide. That was really tough, too, because we did um a green screen below them there so it looked like they were you know falling you know from 100 feet up in the air if the rocks were falling or something but that was pretty challenging too it came out real good i think one of my favorite shots in the movie and it's such a simple shot but it's so pretty is when um when sean astin and uh josh brolin are on the the porch uh, when the when the dudes come with the foreclosure papers and they leave and it's raining outside and it pans around the house and you see like the sweeping hills of Astoria and it's stor- it's raining and they hug on the side of the porch it's such a pretty shot yeah and you know I overdid it a little bit I I had two guys gather up a bunch of leaves and go up on the roof and they were throwing these leaves off but they did overdid it a little bit if you'll notice next time you see it they they threw a few handful of leaves too many 
but I, <laughs> I always liked them to have you know just come down but a couple of things were just clumps of, of leaves so get a kick out of that next time you see that yeah that's a good good shot they look great and those little details like having leaves being thrown even if there's there's a little too many it's just it's those little Get things like that yeah, yeah it really makes it really gives good. it depth yeah. awesome do you, do you have a favorite memory from the production i would say i guess doing my scene you know that i'm still getting a residual from it <laughs> there you go uh it over overall it was just a fun movie to work on and it was the top people in the industry and, and these kids were so young and they all went on to do very good in fact the kid that played chunk i don't know whether you know about that but He's a huge um, showbiz lawyer now. He's got his own. In fact, Donner fixed him up with a bunch of lawyers. And now I think he's got his own uh, agency. And if I, if I might say the most attractive of all the cast members, uh, as far as like how, how what, what time has done, done to, to them. them. Yeah, gotcha. like, he, hey, he's made it, man. He's GQ now. Yeah, he, yeah, that truffle shuffle really worked out after all these years. Yeah, he's skinny as a rail now and bald as a billiard. <laughs> now, before we move on, last question about the Goonies. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share that you think the fans of the film would like to know that they can't get on IMDb or that maybe there are some rumors behind it or just a nice just a nice story they may want to know? I can't think of really one offhand. It was just a, a great time and a story. A lot of good old friends working together. And, and um, you know, that was the first two weeks of the movie or month of the movie. And it was just, it was all of us just kind of gelling, getting together and going on to do the rest of the movie. So I would just say it was just a great experience is all I can say. All right, in, uh, in 1996, you returned to Astoria where Goonies was shot to work on another staple of iconic cinema, Short Circuit. Uh, Johnny Number no. 5 was a $1.4 million robot I read. I'm wondering, did it operate like a remote control am animatronic and or, or were there like what were the limitations of the functionality of that thing? Yeah, it was it was all done by, you know, uh, remote uh, guys running. It. But also number five killed himself, committed suicide one time. He was he was totally shut down. He was on the back of the tailgate of this truck. And all of a sudden he just went forward and crashed <laughs> down a about six feet and just ruined them. They had to rebuild. But they said there's no way that that could have happened because air, all the power was off. But so they figured he committed suicide, number five. That was some residual curse from The Exorcist 2 following you into the short circuit. There was a short circuit in Johnny Five. Oh, yeah, man. Short circuit, short circuit. He terminated himself. <laughs> oh, my. He won't yeah. be back. <laughs> all right. That's amazing. Now, in 1987, you strike gold again, working with Mel Brooks on his classic <sighs> satirical spoof of the science fiction genre, Spaceballs. I, I, I saw in an interview that Mel Brooks wanted the production quality to be as impressive as the films it was spoofing, if not more so. And it actually shows in the final film. How do you approach a vision like that where it's intended to look as a serious science fiction film, but it's actually a comedy? How do you, how do you guys do that? Well, Brooks's first comedy or first um, talk or meeting that I had with him, I just came off a movie called City Heat with uh, Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds, which was just underlit, you know, just no light at all. And, and um, Mel told me, he said, look, this is a comedy and I pay for those walls. I want to see them. So <laughs> light it up, light it up. 
He's a funny guy, Mel Brooks. <laughs> You're a funny guy. It'd be really <laughs> strange if he was not funny at all in real life. <laughs> I pay for those walls. I want to see him. I, he, that has to be a shirt. I pay for those walls. I want to see him. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what he said to me. I pay for those walls. I want to see them all. Don't try and skimp on the light. <laughs> the production quality of Spaceballs yeah. is always so impressive to me. It's almost better than Star Wars, which is insane. I think uh, ILM did actually loan, did a lot of the effects for Spaceballs too, right? They did, and I worked for ILM after that for a couple of years. I'd go up there three days a week and work for uh, Lucas out at the ranch. And what a what an education that was! God, it was just a great time. I did yeah. like the, the miniatures and. All the green screen on Willow. Remember that movie with um, with yes. uh, Ronnie Howard directed, I believe. Yeah, Val Kilmer. I love Willow. Yeah, but that, it was just a great time up there. It was just all the real intelligence. In 1988, this is something when when uh, when Dave sent us your information, and I and I looked you up to see what else you had done besides the Goonies and everything else. I was pro- I'm probably most excited about this particular question because I watch I'm a big fan of Paul Rudd and I don't know and I, I don't know if you were aware of this gag that he does on Conan O'Brien but you shot the cult classic Mac and Me and uh, every time Paul Rudd goes on Conan O'Brien to pr- you know like when a star goes on a show they usually bring a clip to promote whatever movie that they're going to be in from like the, the first time Paul Rudd went on Conan O'Brien to like the last Avengers movie, he gets Conan every single time. Like, you got a clip? Yeah, I got a clip. And so they, they actually let us show a clip of it. So. Let's take a look at this clip from the 40-year-old virgin. You're not going to do it to me again, are you? No, I have a clip from the movie. The studio is making me play the actual clip. Santo Laquasto, the set designer. <laughs> yeah. It's a, is, a, is a genius. That almost looked like it was outdoors. That's the <laughs> All right, roll the clip. Here goes the kid barreling off the side of the cliff in the wheelchair. And every time, and it gets funnier every time. But Paul, but Paul Rudd wasn't in that, was he? In, no, no, we don't know what's You know who was an extra in, in uh, Mac and Me was Jennifer Aniston. That's you know what I saw a I saw a YouTube video on Mac and me and they they were only able to speculate whether or not that was Jennifer Aniston in like the big McDonald's party and that's and we just confirmed, confirmed. it TTFT thank you confirmed. thank you sir <laughs> but I mean Mac and me I mean what an amazing experience that is to be almost um, like it took this weird transition from something that people didn't take seriously because it was up against like ET and movies like that 
to now it's like people hold it up as a cool classic. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of the reason is because really? of Paul Rudd. He, he stood, it stood the test of time. Yeah. Well, when I, when I got um, interviewed to do that picture, the producer told me, he said, if I can make one-tenth the money E.T. made, I'll be a rich man the rest of my life. And I don't think it made that much, but it was kind of fun. The, the director on that, I think his name was Stuart Raffel, was a really kind of a fun director. He was more of an animal guy than he was a, um, a person person. He, he trained, he was like a trained animals most of his life. And I don't know even how he got that job, but it was pretty fun, pretty much fun job. Um, in uh, 2000 to 2004, this is when you transitioned from shooting films that sealed their place in history to one of the most popular television series of literally all of time, Friends, um, as we mentioned before. Now, this actually earned you an Emmy nomination three years in a row. Uh, but besides your um, personality not being not being wildly accepted on the set of television shows what would you say is the biggest difference between shooting a feature film and shooting a multi-camera television production like that because unlike friends or i did two or three sitcoms instead of one camera you have four cameras at least sometimes five so what what's front light for one camera is backlight for another camera so you can't be too aggressive lighting or under lighting unless the director just says let's go for it whatever we get we get but it was everything had to be pretty much flat especially with the girls you had to soft light everything and as long as they were happy i was happy but it was very easy to do compared to uh movies would you say is that like easy in like a in a negative sense uh like where it could get almost the um the redundancy of it could get paralyzing yes yeah it, it's it was very easy very as long i at the end there we were um doing it digitally and i had all the monitors in my office so i could watch every camera what every camera was doing and then i had um a um radio telephone to my key grip and to my gaffer so i could do most of it right from my office just you know which was right on the stage but you know i could see what i wanted to light get brighter darker or whatever so yeah it was it's way different than uh, shooting at being a dp on a feature thankfully i feel like the landscape of tv production has changed a lot like you say your son is on Grey's anatomy i feel like that's probably a completely different experience in tv production because like since uh shows like nypd blue my son did that too my son was the camera operator on that for about five years i always looked at them as more like like because i assume that's like single camera probably yeah it was yeah they had two cameras but it was shot like single camera and now on gray's anatomy he has three digital cameras and he has a drone also Oh, so you don't have to double back for reaction shots. Right. Pump, yeah, okay, nice. Hit it and go. Right. Yeah, but the drone is what what uh, freaked me out. But yeah, you know, we didn't. Drones weren't even in business when I was, you know, when I retired. So a lot I'm of people so, were using drones. I'm really glad you bring that up, and I know that we went past the Goonies, but I there's a one shot um, in the Goonies that I was really impressed by, and I'm curious how it was pulled off because I feel like it was way too smooth to be a helicopter. And I can't think of any other way it was done. I don't think it was, I think it was too tall for a crane. When all the kids are riding their bikes down the uh, path into the, into the woods. 
absolutely a helicopter. And that was Ooh. my pilot was uh, Ricky Holly, who was like the best in the industry. And I did all kinds of I did a lot of helicopter work and in, in a lot of movies and a lot of commercials and stuff like that. But that was definitely Ricky. And uh, we did it two or three different times. But then Ricky went on to die on a runaway train. He hit a wire and uh, went in. In fact, I still go out and, and pour beer on his grave every once in a while. He was just an excellent, he, he was a, a Vietnam helicopter pilot and he could, he could fly backwards damn near as well as he could fly forward. So that's why that shot was so smooth. Hats off to him. Yeah, because that was deceptively smooth. I was racking my brain trying to figure out, like, all right, this, what's Not happening here? Because this is... Yeah. yeah. I remember the day we did that. And we actually flew. I asked him down where the... At the the start of the movie is, is like... We did that with a helicopter, too. It's like the RVs go for, like a, like, a race on the beach. And we flew between those two rocks, those big haystack rocks and i don't think there was 10 feet of of space rotor space on either side but but he he could do it the guy the guy was magic that is precise man that yeah, is very precise beautiful shot yeah i'm glad you brought up that uh, yes that was, thank you for that yeah. thank you for that let me ask you this now thinking of your entire filmography uh what was i i think i just heard it but uh, i was gonna say what was your what's the, what was the most challenging film for you to shoot and why well actually city heat was because with Clint and Bert, um, and Bert was going through some rough times. Uh, you know, he had some sort of a jaw problem and, you know, couldn't work a lot of days. And even though Clint's easy to work with, I was using almost no light. And it was like 50% nights out. I don't know whether you ever saw the film, but it came out pretty good photographically. So I'd say that was the most challenging and, and that I ever did. And probably one of the best looking films I ever did. Wow. All right. So now, now we know it's, it is a difficult question because every film is like a child that, you know, you took a part in creating. But is there a particular project that you're most proud of uh, as far as the work you did or something you pulled off that you didn't think you maybe would be able to? And I think it might have been seeing that low light on City Heat. But other than that, any other thing you could think of? I would say um, and I was the camera operator on this film it was called Being There with Peter Sellers. And it just it was just a collaboration of all of us. And. Peter Sellers was in on the deal and we became real good friends on it. But that was one of the highlights of my career. One of my favorite things I ever worked on. Amazing. Oh, I couldn't imagine working with Peter Sellers. He's such he a, incredible. I think um, I love you. Alice B. Toklas, one of my top 10 yeah. favorite movies. He's so good. He's, he was like the original straight man. They could do it yeah, really, really effectively. Terrific guy. And he knew he had heart problems. He knew he was dying. And in this day and age, they could have fixed his heart. He would have lived to be an old man, but he knew he was having trouble with it. And that's how he died pretty young. Um, for uh, aspiring filmmakers out there, or actually specifically aspiring cinematographers, what is the most important thing that they should know? I think, and actually my stepfather, who was a cinematographer, uh, I asked him that question just before he was passing away. And he told me balance, which is true. In any scene, you want to get something real, real bright and real, real dark and just balance the whole thing out. And composition was pretty important also. So and you can't always, you know, choose every composition, but, you know, just try and have some sort of an artistic composition, I would say. So balance, I'd say, was 
is the most important. That's so true because you notice like when you, you can have a completely dimly lit scene, but as long as there's something illuminated mm-hmm. within the shot, your mind can kind of fabricate the rest of what's going yeah. on mm-hmm. and build off of that. And I got that from Zygmunt who, you know, went on, he won the Academy Award for Close Encounters, but he went on to be, you know, we did the deer hunter together and stuff like that. But, and he was a real, real, one of those um, cinematographers, his whole life uh, base was based around the next shot, but that's, that was his, his thing too, was composition and, and what a great cinematographer he was. Yeah, amazing. Now, as far as cinematography goes, is there a particular film that aspiring cinematographers should definitely watch as a blueprint for what perfection or at least near perfection looks like in your opinion? I can tell you exactly. Anybody should go see The Goonies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Actually, there's everything in The Goonies, you know, there's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything, you know, as far as the caves are gone, really difficult work and the 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 tunnels unbelievable so now, now i have a question he, he got he got asked a question based off of something you said earlier so i want to ask my he wants to know about that shot with uh like you said when they were the kids are riding the bike now is this are you you're not you're talking about all the kids i want to know about on the film where what i told you on the phone like oh, nine days when, would be, it'd be when, it would be considered attempted murder when Josh, when the, when yeah, yeah, rolling <laughs> off the, uh... he goes off the ravine like the guy like how, how was that difficult to film at all? Like you say, you got the car there, you got them riding off the. I mean, like how, how could you take us behind it if you could? Yeah, that that scene was that was done by a, a stuntman friend of mine named Teddy Grossman. They put him on them. They just ran him off the cliff. Okay, there we go. <laughs> see, kids, hey, we're in the eighties. You see it? It happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> practical baby. That's amazing. Amazing. Thank and you. I, man. I don't like that. That that reminded me so much of ET. The moment when Elliot <laughs> takes off, with, but he uh, went a different way. Yeah, they, <laughs> but they started off the same. Um, according to IMDb, it looks like you stepped away in 2006. You so actually, we already confirmed this. You are definitely retired, and also wanted to say happy birthday. I know your birthday. Thank is you. Coming. We had a big party here last Saturday. For four of my friends that turned 80 within two weeks of each other. And we're all still alive, which is the amazing part. It's amazing that you're all uh, not just alive, but uh, available to, to party. party. Right. Like, I, can't I want that for us. I want that for us. Yeah. Our 80s. I want that. Um, that's not get crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is a three-part question. What what led to your decision finally to, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away I've had enough, you know, I'm satisfied. What led to that? And then with 15 years now between between now and your last project, what do you miss the most and what do you miss the least? The the thing I miss the most is the camaraderie of the guys. And the thing I miss the least is um, getting up at the crack of dawn and working. You know, you work in show business or in movies and in television. You work you know, sometimes, you know, way over 12 hours, sometimes 14 or more hours a day. Mm-hmm. So, and living in Malibu, it's an hour drive each way. So I, I guess what I don't miss is, is getting up at the crack of dawn and getting home barely time to get enough sleep to go back to work. I just was financially good. I knew I could make it to the, to the day I die financially. Um, and I was married to a great gal who is also in the industry and she was uh, an animal trainer. And she had, re- well, she worked a couple more years after that, but she retired after that. 
And so it was just a good life. And I know you don't get that many days. So I've just figured I'm just going to enjoy every day. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I know it may take a certain degree of luck to get your foot in the door, but it takes a lot of wisdom to know when to step the other foot out of the door. Yeah, I was ready to go and I've never regretted, never looked back at all. And let me ask you this before we go. I want to ask one thing here. Do you like you say you are retired now? Do you at least for me ever since we've been doing film and I, I, I became and wanted to be an actor and now we direct and do these things. I can't watch a film without being myself, always wondering what I would have done. Do you still, I know you don't want to do it anymore, but do you still find yourself watching stuff like, mm, could have lit that better or I would have done it like this. Do you still do that? Very rarely, but sometimes I do. But most of the time I can, in fact, I, I'm a really, I'm in the Academy. So I get all the, the, um, you know, the CDs. Mm-hmm. And so I see everything, but once movies open up again, I go at least once a week to the movies. I, I just love them. But for some reason, occasionally I'll think, well, I would have done it a different way. But most of the time, I'm a spectator. I love just watching them. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. So before, first of all, yeah, we definitely want to say thank you. But before we say goodbye, are there any parting words you'd like to leave with the audience? Not necessarily about the Goonies, but just people in life, anything you can offer, any words of encouragement to the world we live in? Well, I, I can say that uh, if you are thinking about a career in show business, it's the greatest. Um, I was lucky. I think I went all around the world and got paid for it. And um, most of the time, I enjoyed every day of it. So I would say if, if that's what you were looking to do, keep it up. Because eventually, everybody that I've known that has really, really tried to get in um, the studios or TV or whatever, they make it eventually, but you just have to keep persisting. Mm-hmm. Right. That's yeah, that, that. Those are probably the most encouraging words that somebody could hear who's at the bottom of the mountain works, trying to get so there. Yeah, just keep going. Right. Right. Um, well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been truly enlightening. Great. I'm, I'm glad to do it. Our childhood doesn't exist without you. So feel responsible for yeah. that, Big Daddy. You, yeah. Our childhood does not exist without you doing yeah. what you do, man. You probably babysat me more than my parents did. All right. You're, de- you're getting them in trouble. Now you're going to get your parents in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also wanted to say thank you very much to Dave McGifford for yes. putting us in touch. Yeah, McGifford. I, I think I'll give him an email right now. Thank you very much, Nick. And uh, have a very happy birthday. Go, go North Huskies. Thank you. Goonies never say die. Yeah! Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. When you subscribe, it'll last longer.